Welcome, dear listener, to the latest episode of The Search Space, the podcast that concerns itself with logic programming and the transitive closure of all the wonderful things directly, indirectly, or very indirectly connected to it. I'm Felix, and in this episode I speak with Chris Martins, who is Assistant Professor in Computer Science at NC State University. Among other things, Chris has explored the use of logic programming for generating narratives and interactive stories. In particular, they created a programming language called Scepter, based on a variant of logic called Linear Logic, which has certain advantages when it comes to modeling some of our typical expectations on how things should behave, like if you move a glass from this table over to that table, the glass is subsequently only on that table, not on both tables at once. So as I said, Chris used this system to automatically generate storylines, in some cases interactive. And why would logic be a good tool for that? You could probably imagine a few other ways of generating a game world or a story. Well, one reason is that logic was created precisely as a way to succinctly express basic properties of things in the world and the relationships between them. Of course, we can debate whether the actual physical world has a structure that fits with logic or not. But our cognitive view of the world does, to a large extent, revolve around entities with properties and relations to other entities, all of which persist or change through time and space and so forth. And all of this is something that logic was designed to describe. And as Chris says in the interview, whatever else it's good for, logic is naturally suited for generating and controlling, talking about synthetic worlds like computer games, precisely because they reflect how we perceive and think about things in the world. Chris also talks a bit about experimenting with other logic programming systems, namely Minicanron and AnswerSet Programming or ASP. We will hopefully delve into those systems in future episodes. But if you haven't heard of them, I think the main point for our conversation is that these are both similar to Prolog in that they are based on search. The programmer expresses a goal and various constraints, and the system searches for solutions. Whereas Scepter, which Chris created, is a forward chaining system which is more like just following a thread of logical implications and seeing where one ends up without any specific goal. By the way, at one point we talk a bit about the board game Pandemic, which in August 2020 might seem like an odd choice of example, but, well, first of all, it's a very good example. And secondly, this conversation took place long before the COVID-19 outbreak. So, if we sound blissfully unconcerned, it's simply because, like most people, we were, in fact, more unconcerned about real pandemics than we'll probably ever be again. Now, let's learn more about narrative generation, linear logic, and the rules of pandemic in this interview with Chris Martins. Chris Martins, uh, welcome to the Search Space podcast. Thank you. Excited to be here. 
It's really great to have you here. I've been, uh, you know, aware of your work for some years. It's, I haven't read all of your PhD, but I have at least a superficial understanding and, and really um, interactive fiction, interactive storytelling, that kind of thing is at least a really big part of how I got interested in logic programming awesome. from the start. So yeah, it's going to be really interesting to hear about your work. So, well, um, I guess we could start with the work you did for your PhD. Sure. And just reading the title is exciting. It's uh, Programming Interactive Worlds with Linear Logic. Yeah, yeah. So maybe we could just start by breaking that down for us a little yeah, bit. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so Interactive Worlds was, was the part of the title that I kind of had to think about for a while because I, I, I was doing a lot with narrative generation. That was kind of my, my motivating example. Uh, I was using linear logic programming for codifying story worlds or sort of generative story specifications and then generating stories with those programs. But I didn't want to quite narrow the scope of what I was doing just to narrative because I also had some uh, other sort of more game-like applications in mind and other generative um, generative applications like procedural content generation and games. So interactive worlds was the phrase that I kind of came up with to uh, to capture the scope of what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so the idea is that you can you can program those things or you can model those things using linear logic as a programming language, and you can kind of break that down. You can parse it either as like using a linear logic programming language or using a linear logic programming language, right? It's it's logic programming, but it's based on something called linear logic. Right. So just the phrase nar- narrative generation, yeah. for example, and, and a few other mm-hmm. ones you mentioned, it's uh, by themselves uh, are kind of pretty mind-blowing. I mean, <laughs> what is narrative generation? Yeah, so narrative generation as a field, I think a, a lot of the people that I know in that field kind of cite one of the original works as the Tailspin paper by Ryan Mee, uh, the the Tailspin system, which was actually a list-based system. And that was in 1977, I believe. And the idea is that you can kind of simulate a, a collection of story characters with different motivations and goals and an environment that they all live in and um, give them ways to interact with one another, like by, you know, talking to each other to find out what their goals are and having conflicts one another if their goals conflict and then generating scenarios based on the different ways that that can unfold. You know, so somebody uh, in the tailspin system, there was a lot of kind of wandering around in the woods, like getting hungry and thirsty and trying to find ways of satisfying that and occasionally getting chased by bears. In my system, I kind of went for a more Shakespearean genre and simulated social interactions involving, you know, falling in love and getting jealous and getting uh, angry and depressed and things like that. Mm -hmm. So how, how similar or, or dissimilar is this from the kind of system that you have in like modern RPG or, you know, yeah, RPG style games where, I mean, many of those things that you mentioned, at least walking around in the woods and getting hunted by by uh, by any kind of animal. (laughs) Yeah, 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 that's true. Um, Uh, yeah, I think that there are similarities. I think a lot of the people working on narrative generation systems are motivated by games, and particularly um, there's a, a lot of interest in this idea of emergent narrative, where a game, you know, a game system can kind of by accident give rise to interesting narratives just because the 
AI, if you want to call it that, or the, you know, the procedural simulation underlying the game is um, creating these uh, sort of spontaneous moments of serendipity, right, that, that the designer didn't necessarily plan for, but because of the way that certain things interact, um, you, you wind up observing these consequences of a system that are interesting and surprising, and people derive narrative from those things, like, internally, as, as humans, we're very good at kind of anthropomorphizing a system or, or storifying a system when we when we see something unfold and saying, oh, that's really cool. That's that's almost like this really great story. And I think that that kind of motivates people to think, well, what if I were more deliberate about that? What if I tried to scaffold a system like this to identify narratively interesting moments? And yeah, I think that that is definitely a big motivation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like we, we always fill in the blanks. So if, if anything is even remotely kind of suggestive of some interesting theme or something, we, we, we tend to fill in all the blanks and make it a kind of a great story. Yeah, exactly. Uh, just as uh, the player or spectator, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, you, you mentioned that it's sort of like an emergent property of when you set up some procedural rules that uh, if you kind of get the balance right, then usually something or you could make something interesting emerge and you, you won't really know what it is and... I mean, it's hard to control. You can't play all the different, I mean, all the different paths through the game or the world. And there's maybe a lot of randomness involved. So right. where does logic enter into this picture? Is is it in part to kind of try to get more control over the, the, the possible stories or products that come out of this system? Yeah, I think... I think that's definitely a part of it. Um, yeah, it, logic has been a part of story generation systems in a lot of different ways. In some cases, and I think this is mostly the case for my PhD thesis, it's mainly about the authoring affordances and being able to describe a world state in terms of logical predicates and kind of get this this nice like logic programming, you know, correspondence where the you know, the states of the world sort of correspond to a big conjunction of logical propositions and searching or um, constructing proofs through that space kind of corresponds to building a story along the way. Um, I just, I, I sort of think like that correspondence is nice and I like to author with it. Uh, I, but my system and, and a couple of the others that are based on that idea don't really give you a lot of ability to control, like to sort of introduce authorial constraints on your story. Uh, whereas there are systems, like I've recently been playing a lot with um, some different logic programming systems, um, Answer set programming and mini Canon in particular that kind of give more affordances for constraining um, constraining traces through that search space, and I think that that's a really compelling and interesting tool for narrative generation too. Okay, so this is a really interesting distinction. Maybe we can dwell on it a little bit. So, so in your PhD, the focus uh, or kind of the resulting system is still more of could we say like in the simulationist vein, you set up kind of a simulation and and you kind of see what happens as it unfolds. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, and you kind of tinker with the rules and try to find a balance. Yes. Mm -hmm. But you're but you're not necessarily controlling. Yeah, as you said, traces. Maybe you can explain about the idea of traces that you just sure. Mentioned. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, program trace in the sense of a, a record of all the steps that your program takes as it runs. Ordinarily, as programmers, we don't think of the program trace itself as being particularly interesting unless we're 
debugging or, you know, just trying to figure out what our program was doing. But in the case of linear logic programming, the traces themselves are kind of interesting output. In some cases, they are the output we care about in, in, um, in the linear logic view of things, it, it actually corresponds to a proof of a particular sequent or a particular kind of formula in logic, and that proof can then be interpreted as, ha as representing either a sequence of events representing a story, if you just kind of read it linearly, or you can actually, um, linear logic gives you the ability to inspect the causal connections between the events and kind of see uh, this is another thing the kind of logical basis gives you is um, you can see, well, okay, if an, if if some event, um, i trying to think of a good example, uh, mm -hmm. you know, so if, if some event, let's say, a character needs a particular item to do a particular task, you know, they need a pen to write, right? So they, they um, perform some action in the environment that gets them, you know, take pen, right, that gets them the pen. Uh, and then later on in the story, they write something. And meanwhile, some other things may have been happening, but you can draw a causal connection between the two events um, because the, the logic is tracking the, the resources for you and the, the steps along the way that uh, produce and consume those resources. Mm -hmm. So are you, are, is this about asking why does this person have a pen because they picked it up earlier or is it why do they have the pen because or um is it tracking their intention as well of wanting to do something with the pen uh it's not necessarily tracking intention you could potentially use it to encode that but yeah and this is more just like can you kind of uh trace the the i'm using the word trace now in a more informal way um can you sort of trace the mm -hmm. dependencies for why this event in the story occurred like what you know you could kind of ask these hypothetical questions like if this other event hadn't happened would this event have been possible or in the case of um i guess i can take some of my shakespeare world narrative generation um you kind of have characters that are gradually accumulating more of an emotion like um like anger or or sadness or something and then they they do something there's a big story event like um you know a murder or, or a suicide uh, that occurs on the basis of this emotion building up and you might wonder sort of you know what led to this big dramatic event in my story um you can you can trace all the points where that emotion was generated. This is generally something you could do of, of any simulation system. It just sort of has a happens to have mm -hmm. a neat sort mm -hmm. of representation in scepter or in, in mm -hmm. my language. Okay, so so the focus here is on not so much um, well, okay, I guess it is on interactive because that's in the title, interactive works. Mm -hmm. But but you're also talking about just kind of generating, just even generating one kind of compelling story, uh, interactive or not? Is that sort of the, the first step? Or? Yeah, 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 that's 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 a very good point. I do have interactive in, in my title, and mostly right now I've been talking about generativity. I think that these two ideas are very related because, well, interaction is often more exciting if, uh, if it kind of, if, if your interactions have these effects that you don't necessarily have control over, right? If they, uh, your interaction with the simulation can cause some kind of interesting ripple effect or whatnot. But I do have a way of introducing interaction into, into programs. And that's also something I'm especially interested, um, you know, kind of as a game designer. So, so yeah, so there, there, there mm -hmm. is a mechanism for doing that. I, in, in, 
in my language, you can write logic programs in little bundles called stages and then have, uh, which are kind of like, you can think of them maybe as sort of different positions along a, a state machine or kind of a graph for, for which uh, part of the, you know, which part of the simulation you're in. But you can then mark any individual stage as being interactive, which just means uh, well, in the command line implementation, it just means instead of making a non-deterministic choice among all the possible ways the program can evolve, it will show them to you and allow you to select the choice. Oh, mm-hmm. Okay, that that is very neat. I think I understand that idea, but I, I think I would like to backtrack a little bit here. Sure. Uh, it's probably not super uh, intuitive for many people. Like, to How do you make the jump from okay, you want to have an interactive story world of some kind, mm-hmm. but how? why would you choose to use logic, logic programming to do that? Mm-hmm. Um, do, you, do you do a lot of programming or have you done some programming in kind of more conventional languages or could you g- give a description of how did you get onto this track of using logic? Oh, yeah. Logic um, my track is, is very unusual. Uh, it may be familiar to other people who went, to CMU, but it's really um, kind of an unusual thing outside of there, I think. But so, yeah, I, you know, I started programming like most people in my generation of, of programmers, uh, kind of just learning in school. I had some C++ and some Java in, in high school. And then when I started undergrad, you know, there was more Java and uh a little bit of C and a little bit of standard ML, which was my first introduction to functional programming. Um, I completely fell in love with functional programming. I was already, I had already been kind of bitten by the logic bug, not as like a programmer, but just I was taking lots of logic classes from uh, like the philosophy department and was interested in formalism and formal logic. Started getting interested in functional programming and uh, eventually started doing some some programming languages research because the most of the ways of kind of following that interest in functional programming were, you know, design of programming languages. From there, I got interested in, and this was sort of just before grad school, I got interested in the idea of logical frameworks um, or systems for encoding um, deductive systems, which include different types of logics and programming languages and basically proving theorems about them all within a a mechanized system. So there's a, you know, a system that checks your proof and makes sure you're doing it right. And Mm -hmm. the system that I was, that I got familiar with was called 12th, uh, which is Frank Fennings and uh, and Karsten Sherman and the main people who worked on that. It's, It's a logical framework based on the dependently typed logic LF and the system was all, and it was all based on logic programming. And that was pretty much my first, I may have like seen Prolog before, but I think that was kind of my first introduction to logic programming. You write all the inference rules as, as sort of logic program clauses. You write your proofs as clauses of a logic program, uh, which are then checked for, for coverage to make sure that they're a, a complete proof. And you know, anyway, I just, I got really interested in this way of representing things and and thought that that was so neat and and like just sort of followed that into the world of logic programming from there especially once i realized that it had a lot in common with the things that i was interested on the games and interactive storytelling side yeah so that was like a so, so that's really interesting yeah, i mean go ahead. yeah no that's yeah. great so so we're along this route sort of okay formal logic in the kind of philosophical context and then theoreming theorem proving right. 
which doesn't necessarily have kind of the flavor of programming mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so much. I mean, it kind of tends to be its own thing. And then, and then more and more into logic programming. Where along this way did you kind of get an inkling that this could be used for? Because I, I still think it's kind of a big leap to realize that this could be used for something like games. Yeah, or... yeah interactive yeah so so to make that leap i i I had to get interested in linear logic first and actually there there are certainly um other papers and um dissertations and things that i've seen that just use more standard logic programming languages to do some kind of applications related to like adventure games and narrative but to me it, it wasn't obvious until i started getting into this linear logic idea so if you want, I can sort of go into that a little bit. Yeah. Yes, that would be <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So so linear logic, it was, uh, you know, invented by this French guy, Jean-Yves Girard, as in, in many ways, like, I think if you were to just sort of read the original paper, it would, it would sort of seem like, you know, what does this have to do with logic programming or games or anything like that? Um, because he's approaching it from a kind of theoretical, like, what if we change the underlying structure of the logic in this way kind of thing? But ultimately what you what you get if you kind of follow the, the steps that Girard lays out to define this logic is a logic that's really good about talking uh, good at talking about resources and state change, basically, uh, which are concepts that are very useful in computer science. Um, so in functional programming, we don't necessarily like to talk about state change, but anytime we want to talk about the underlying memory model uh, or resources that are required or that have to only be used one time or something like that, suddenly being able to kind of talk about having a, a limited availability of a resource pool is a very useful concept. So this got got adopted in the computer science community pretty readily. And uh, what it gives you is sort of a form of logical implication pronounced A, lolly, B. It's usually, um, I wish I had a screen to draw on, but it's like sort of a, a sideways lollipop, right? It's a, like a dash O is how I read it in ASCII. And A, lolly, B is right. uh, this kind of logical implication that says, um, well, there's a, a way of getting from a single copy of A to, to B, but you can't duplicate A. You can't, like in ordinary logic, if you have A implies B, you're allowed to make reference to A multiple times throughout the course of arguing B, uh, whereas with A lolly B, you have to use it exactly once. And you can think about like things you might represent with this are, for example, like if you wanted to exchange, uh, do coin exchanges, and I'm going to use um, American currency for this, but you know, if you have a quarter or 25 cents, you can break that down into five nickels and you could represent that as, you know, quarter lolly nickel, tensor nickel, tensor nickel, tensor nickel, tensor nickel. So it's it's sort of this um, representation of the, like the multiplicity of the proposition is meaningful in linear logic. So you start with some terms that represent resources? That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that correct? Like uh, Some propositions that represent resources, yeah. Propositions, okay. Yeah. And those could be anything you're interested in tracking throughout the world or story, like characters, objects. Yeah, so... Um, Emotions? Yeah, so the way it breaks down is things like, so typically to write a linear logic program in Scepter, I would first think about the term domains, which are the sort of things you're describing, like characters and objects and locations. And then I would define some predicates, um, you know, saying what they can range over. Um, so like you might have a, you have might have a predicate to say where a character is, and that would be, you know, like 
predicate at of character and location. And uh, you might have a predicate has for character and object, let's say. You might also want to define a predicate adjacent to describe the map of the world, describing you know which locations mm-hmm. you can move between freely. And to do that, an ordinary uh, prologue-like logic program suffices. You can you know just sort of write a list of clauses saying where um, saying describing the edges of the map. Uh, but then to describe the ways that the character could move around the map and pick things up, you would need you would start needing linear logic. Or uh, I mean, not needing is a strong word. There again are encodings of of this mm-hmm. using things like time indexing and whatnot. But uh, using linear logic, it's very natural because you can just say. You know, well, if the character is at a certain location and that location is adjacent to another one, then Lolly, the character, is at the new location. Hmm. And this has the semantics that the the left-hand side kind of location of the character is replaced with the right-hand side. So the state change happens right. the way that you would want it to. Hmm. Is So is this related to the frame problem? It sounds like you have kind of a built-in way of handling yeah. what changes and what doesn't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if you try to model this kind of thing using a time indexed logic, like a temporal logic or event calculus or something like this, then mm-hmm. um, you have to state these, uh, you have this, yeah, this frame problem where you have to state the inertia laws saying that, okay, well, I, I know how a certain action can get me from its preconditions to its effects, but then anything that isn't a part of those preconditions or that doesn't change as part of the effects, I have to say, okay, well, that implicitly remains true at the next time step. In linear logic, because you're never explicitly mentioning a time step, you don't have to do that. And by virtue of the kind of nice laws of the logic that just follow from how it's defined, yeah, you don't have to deal with the frame problem. Okay, so maybe if we um, if we take a, kind of more of a user perspective here uh, to just get more of a flavor of the end result of all this machinery, uh-huh. uh, from a from purely from the user perspective, what is the experience of trying to author something with this system? What is it supposed to be like? So, so the sort of what is the author process? Is that what you mean? Sure. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So I. Typically, the author process, for me at least, is that I, I have some idea in mind of what the rules of the system are, what the, the linear implications are. So you have some uh, some collection of, of linear logic rules expressed in the form of, of implications uh, that kind of describe how things in a system interact. I'll give you an example of something I was tinkering with recently, which is a, a board game called Pandemic, which Mm. maybe some of your listeners have heard of. It's a cooperative board game, and it kind of simulates um, the spreading of diseases, and you play play people who are trying to stop the spreading of diseases and eventually cure them. So in this game, you have, you know, what what, what many board games have, you have uh, a little card that tells you what all the possible things you can do on your turn are. And that is kind of, to me, like the, the core of like a board game's definition is sort of like what can you what's what's the space of actions what are your players able to do on any given turn um in pandemic it's things like you can move around the map uh you can build research stations you can sometimes give cards to other players you can use a a card in your hand to travel somewhere distant or you can cure or treat a disease represented by a little cube on the map and if you have enough cards in your hand then you can cure a disease 
so the way that I typically approach this is by first thinking, okay, well, how would I represent all of those different actions? You can kind of imagine like, okay, to, you know, for treating a cube, well, I have to be on a certain location in the map and there has to be um, a disease cube there. And then I have to spend an action. So that's a resource. Um, you get, you get four actions per turn. So you spend an action. So that all goes on the, the left-hand side of the rule. And then on the right-hand side of the rule, um, well, I'm still in the same location that I was, so you can repeat that, but, um, nothing else is on the right-hand side because the, you lose a turn and the disease cube goes away. So you can kind of think about how to model each of those rules. And then that gives you a sense for what the predicates are that you'll need to represent. Like you need predicates to say where things are, like locations, presence of disease cubes, cards in your hand, and so on. And then you can go about defining your domain in terms of those things and the terms that they depend on. Like, you know, you're going to have players and locations and things like that. So that's, that's kind of my approach. So it sounds like, yeah, it sounds like a pretty straightforward process to kind of go from uh, the idea that you have in your head of uh, like, what does it mean to perform an action to actually writing it down? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just interesting to take a moment to kind of consider what you would need to do to really represent that in a imperative language, for example, or even a functional language. Right. Yeah, that's um, uh, and to kind of not only kind of how to imagine how to do it, but to be sure that you did mm -hmm. it, if you know what mm -hmm, I mean, mm -hmm. like to be sure that you actually implemented a certain rule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's something I care about a lot is is this ability to sort of be able to perceive the um, correctness of of your program when you write it. I I think that Scepter, you know, it's not quite up to my standards in that regard because there are a lot of things in terms of these logical representations of game states, for example, that as designers and authors, we think of as uh, kind of obvious invariants, maybe like things that like, for example, maybe that a player can't be in more than one location. That's obvious when we're imagining it as just a token on a board that just moves around. But in the program, of course, you can duplicate predicates. And you could say, you know, at player Paris and at player Madrid, right? And then that's, um, now you kind of have two instances of, of this thing. And so um, so there's like an invariant of your program that, that isn't necessarily captured by what you've written down. And, and that can make things complicated. So I like to think of Scepter as like a, a nice tool for tinkering with small systems. And I have found that when I try to sort of scale it to really, to much bigger examples and have lots of stages interacting and so on, there can be, you know, it, it can be just as easy to introduce bugs as it might be in an imperative language. I spent a little bit of okay. time thinking about that problem for like the work in the last chapter of my dissertation, which is about expressing and checking invariants, but that didn't make it into the implementation. Okay. But I, it still sounds like uh, at least using linear logic would kind of decrease that sort of problem. Because I also found that's kind of a hard part of adjusting from a more um, imperative mindset that you kind of assume that you're always overwriting state. Mm. But but when you try to do something in a logical uh, framework, you have to always think about kind of destroying the old one, even if it's just like changing a position on a board or something. Mm -hmm. You have to... I, I, I found that several times that I forgot, oh, wow, now I have two yeah. you know, representations on different locations. But it sounds like using linear logic would kind of decrease that class of problem a bit. 
yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, Since you would have to, wouldn't you have to explicitly state on the right hand side that you still want the old one? Yeah. And yes. You well, so it? right. So so there's like there's a bit of a delicate balance to strike because it's so common of an idiom to want to repeat something. Um, a lot of rules have just things that you might think of as preconditions, which are not things that you plan to change in the rule, but that, you know, you depend on being true when the rule fires. And so I introduced a, a bit of syntactic sugar. This is the dollar sign notation. If you ever look at any sceptral code, you'll probably see it a lot mm -hmm. because this is just a notation for saying, repeat this thing again on the right-hand side of the rule. So it, it literally just expands oh. to that. But that's so, because that's so common, it's sort of easy to maybe have one where you don't mean to have one or to leave one out when you need to have it. And then you get to a point in your program where you're like, well, wait, why is this not here? Where did it go? And you, know, you need to go back and add it, add a dollar sign or something like that. So yeah, it's, right. it's not as, so, yeah, it's not as obvious necessarily as you might wish. Okay. I see. What you're saying. So just an example that maybe could be something like if you're in a room and the, and the lamp is lit, mm -hmm. then you can, I don't know, then you're able to do something. And, if you don't use that something like your dollar sign there, then mm -hmm. the the light will go away right. on the right hand yeah, side. Yeah, exactly. So so you need syntactic sugar for that, but then you might get the opposite pr problem. So so w whichever way you're trying to make it easier, you you end up risking keeping stuff that you shouldn't have kept or or the opposite. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, we talked at the beginning a little bit about I don't know if. What do you think about this uh, terminology? But something like a more simulationist mm -hmm. way of creating games yeah. mm -hmm. uh, versus something where you have more control and you're trying to not just kind of unleash a bunch of interesting rules, but you're trying to shape the actual outcome and make sure that certain things can or cannot happen. Right. And so then you mentioned that you've been experimenting, for example, with answer set programming. Yes. So yeah, maybe you could talk about that. Yeah, so... It, it, it kind of, it feels a little bit like dark magic. You know, my, all of my logic training is kind of in constructive logics, right? This um, kind of idea of, well, taking certain logical principles with how you, you build your logic that give you a nice correspondence between logical proofs and executable programs. And answer set programming feels, and I guess is sort of deeply non-constructive in the sense that it reduces every program um, into a like something that's SAT solvable, so a SAT formula, and uh, and then run some you know very fast algorithms to try to to give you answers to these really complex constraint problems. A colleague of mine um, named Adam Smith likes to describe this as sculptural. Uh, what is he? I don't remember the exact phrase, but I know like the term sculpture is used, and I think that's very evocative mm. because it's kind of like. You create a block of marble first by using these uh, sort of non-deterministic generative rules, which say, uh, you know, any any one of these predicates might be true or not. I'm not committing one way or the other. I'm just hmm. giving you a way to to say if you want to make one of these things true, you may, and and so you can use those to to create the space of possible formulas, which may or may not be true, possible um, uh, answer sets, right, and then. Layering on top of that, and sort of like taking this block of marble, you can carve away from that that space by introducing constraints, uh, by saying, okay, well, you're allowed to make A true, and you're allowed to make B true, 
but in fact, I never want them to be true at the same time. You can introduce an, a, a separate rule saying that. So f the way that this can kind of apply in the narrative generation stuff that I've been discussing is you could describe, you can give a bunch of choice rules to kind of talk about all the possible kind of the action space the or the event space, like the way that different narrative states could evolve to, to next narrative states. And then you could introduce rules saying things like, uh, well, at the end of the story, I want it to be the case that, I don't know, the princess and the frog are married and the prince is dead, right? Or I want it to be the hmm. case, you could constrain maybe something in the middle of the story, like I, I want this event to definitely happen, you know, somewhere between four and six steps into the story. So uh, we won't be able to introduce answer set programming in full here, but it's just, uh, I think it's great to get a little bit of sense of the spectrum of different logic programming approaches yes. here. So could I ask you, what would your ideal system for this kind of uh, narrative authoring or interactive world authoring, what's your vision? Yeah, I, I have... Definitely been wanting something that is kind of a two-layer system where you sort of have the the object the object level system is linear logic based and kind of you can describe the transitions and everything in that way just because I find that not quite natural and and then you use a constraint based system like mini Canron or answer set programming to then manipulate those objects in terms of the like the possibility space. And that, that's a little bit like what I did or what I, what I was tinkering with a little bit in mini Canron. I sat down with um, Will Bird and a couple of other people who work on that system and figured out how to encode um, multi-set rewriting, which is kind of a, a fragment of Scepter or linear logic programming um, within mini Canron. So then it's like these traces um, then become like the terms in your language. And so you can write logic programs over them. And um, yeah, I thought that that was, that was pretty nice. Mm, right. So you're talking about like the possibility of re-implementing something like Scepter yeah. in mini Canron. Right. So the, when you run the program, it would still be kind of the same forward chaining linear logic program, but you could also introduce all these cool constraints that you talked yeah, about, yeah. like at, at such and such point, these two people have to meet or something right. like that. So, so related to this, I can't remember anymore, uh, probably it's in your thesis, that one thing that you did is like uh, run a lot of, I don't know how many, mm -hmm. but you can tell me, you did a lot of runs of your program mm -hmm. and then you had all these different traces and then you could... I mean, it's still just statistics, I suppose, yeah, exactly. but you could check, like, does this person always die or, yeah. you know, in all the different traces that I produced? Something yeah, like yeah, yeah, it? exactly. In something like answer set programming, so long as you're, uh, so long as you limit it to a fragment that's decidable, or certain problems are decidable, um, you know, you could, you could introduce a constraint that is like the negation of the property you're trying to check. And if that's unsatisfiable, then that's... Um, Kind of evidence that in fact that um, property is true of all narratives which yes. is nice but in, in your but in your approach of like gathering a lot of traces yeah it's more yeah like, okay in, i'm satisfied that uh, out of ten thousand, none of them in none of them did this terrible thing happen. yeah exactly yeah so you can still get that information on a you know more like test based with a more test based approach so uh, do you on a practical level do you think 
is it um, good enough to have these uh, just to kind of be able to run thousands of traces or do you crave that as you said the black magic of <laughs> something like asp to actually be sure that uh, certain paths are excluded um or... i think it depends on the application i personally really like to have a you know i like to know a for all not just a, a you know there doesn't exist yet kind of answer to things but i i think that actually in in game development and in sort of digital arts and things like this um it matters a lot less. Like what, what you care about is someone's experience with interacting with the thing you made. And in a generative system, that's typically like you sort of want to, you know, curate for like a, a typical experience. And so if you, you, you know, you're kind of simulating that by running some number of thousands of traces. And if, if that seems reasonable, you know, maybe there will be a couple of anomalies that people will experience, but mm. But generally, that's I think that's okay as as long as you don't encounter a situation that could like irreparably break something. Like if you were generating a level in a game that you know wasn't solvable, or if you gener if you were trying to generate something and you had it it got into an infinite loop and never finished generating, then that would mm. be a, that would be an issue. Mm. But if it's just the kind of thing where like you know I want the overall distribution of output to look vaguely like you know sort of thematically coherent or like this idea that i have in mind and you can kind of see that by inspection of a large number of examples then yeah i think that can be fine mm -hmm. okay so yeah actually we, we said that we'd come back to this uh, property or or mechanism of acquiescence oh yeah mm-hmm Quiescence uh, or quiescence, yeah. Okay, yeah. So maybe uh, maybe we have enough background now because uh, I was um, thinking, could you get into some kind of loop in linear logic? Where mm -hmm. I, I suppose you could. Yeah, yeah, sure. Where, I mean, where you're just kind of yeah, yeah. A is the simplest looping program. Yeah, yeah. So in uh, right. So then, okay. So it's an interesting problem. Though. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So right in in non-linear, I guess I can say persistent, uh, is the, the opposite of linear. In persistent forward chaining systems, you can typically stop, or you typically say you can, you've reached sat saturation if there's no rule you can apply that would give you a new answer, something that you haven't um, already got in your kind of database of knowledge. And, you know, and that, but that property follows from the fact that, well, there's no point in, like, if you already know it, there's no point in adding it. Um, of course, in linear logic, multiplicity is meaningful. So if you already have mm -hmm. an A, then maybe having another one would actually get you enough juice to like make a different rule fire later. So you can't mm -hmm. necessarily just say, oh, I already know that, so don't, don't fire the rule. Typically, what mm -hmm. most implementations do is simply say, if a, if a rule can fire, mm -hmm. then the, you know, by, and by that I mean if, if like there is a rule where all of its uh, premises are are possible to instantiate with some things in the current context. Then, then you know, then that rule is possible to fire, and so you can generate all of the possible transitions in your state and choose one, and then proceed. And only when there are no possible transitions does it actually stop. This doesn't preclude things like you know this you know a, this allea pro program is well you know you can probably look at that and tell it's going to run forever but there are other examples where you might have longer cycles but ultimately have something where you you know you can't visit any new states that you haven't seen before so you could imagine 
implementing like a history system that would track mm -hmm. all the states that you've seen. And if there's no rule you can fire that takes you to um, yeah. a new state that you haven't seen, then you could consider that to be quiescence. So I think there are definitely more like sophisticated definitions of what it could mean. But right now, um, yeah, it's kind of, it's still a young enough um, idea that, that people take the simplest option. But so is that the, how your implementation works? Uh, kind of yeah, that's how my all the yeah my uh, oh no no so my yeah mine is mine is completely history free. It it just it just has the simple okay. definition yeah. And the simple definition is that there is no rule that can fire. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I think implementing a history like um, there might be some challenges in trying to make sure that you uh, have a space efficient or maybe a time efficient representation yeah. for things. Yeah. Mm. So I'm, I'm thinking all the time here in terms of kind of classical interactive fiction, uh, you know, yeah. text based games. Uh, oh, so yeah. something like if you kind of, uh, you know, you drop one of the things you're carrying, then mm -hmm. you pick it up again, mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. dropping it again, is not going to be counted as something interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and pretty much any description of a, game system or of something that's sort of more of a simulation than a progression, um, you know, is going to have these, these these loops because there's reversible behaviors. And that's sort of by design, right? If right. you're describing an action space of, you know, being able to move around on a map, well, generally you want people to be able to move back and forth between locations. Right. So, so yeah, so you wouldn't want to necessarily just simulate that the entire action space kind of running forever, um, choosing hmm. randomly and, and things like that, because you're just going to get a lot of boring moving back and forth behavior. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So, uh, we're running out of time here. Uh, if you want to kind of just mm -hmm. talk a little bit about your current work, maybe your future work, what you have in, mm -hmm. what's coming Sure. Up? Yeah. yeah. I've got a lot of things cooking lately. Uh, since I did mention it briefly, I will talk a little bit about a project that, um, I'm, I'm excited about um, that is, I think, very related to a lot of the things you've talked about so far, which is authoring interactive fiction, kind of using mm -hmm. a logic-based underpinning. And the approach with this project that's different from what I did in my thesis is that instead of just authoring these uh, so-called like atomic interactions, these rules that describe one step of how a character might act, um, you could also author sort of more complex, uh, more complex behaviors. And, you know, on the, on the simplest level, that would just be sequences or kind of plans for a character to get from one situation to another. Um, but it's also interesting to consider, okay, well, if a character has a plan and then they start executing that plan in the world, suddenly some of the preconditions for the action it wants to do next might be invalidated because another character or even the player might have come along and like taken a resource that they needed. Um, hmm. or, you know, even like, you know, more, more commonly, perhaps characters are interacting. And so they kind of need to be synchronized with one another. Like if I'm giving you an object, then I sort of need your plan to expect to you know, receive that object and, um, then go do something with it. Right. Hmm. So I've been, um, so I've been working on this system that is kind of partially inspired by planning and partially inspired by something in the games industry called behavior trees, uh, which are ways of uh, these sort of these things that have like and and or nodes to like 
describe a character. Uh, it's sort of like a decision tree, like to have a character kind of decide in various situations, like by sensing, making observations of the world around them. Uh, okay, which situation am I in? Okay, um, if someone is handing me an apple, I'm going to take that apple. But that's, you know, that's kind of like a priority interrupt over my default behavior, which is maybe just going to be like walking around the map, picking apples from trees. So these things are kind of popular in the games industry, but they don't have the same kind of, well, A, they don't have the same kind of generativity and, and serendipity that you can get from uh, a planning or a search-based system where you can generate longer sequences of plans that, that get a character from a starting configuration to a goal. And B, they don't have, because they're, they're you know, not really based on a, any kind of logical representation of things, um, they're kind of hard to reason about. Like they don't, you, you, you have one of these behaviors and you're kind of, you can stare at it and kind of think like, okay, well, you know, this behavior is supposed to start maybe in a world where there's lots of fruits on trees. And then, uh, what I expect this behavior to do is to kind of walk around and collect apples from the apple trees. And then at the end of things, um, they're going to have a, you know, a basket full of apples. I don't know why I picked this mm. example, but, uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, so and so you can kind of describe what you think is going to be the outcome of a certain behavior, but but uh, people don't really have tools for expressing that expectation. So I'm planning on trying to, you know, I have the system kind of sketched out for giving people a way of using logic to describe specifications or expectations for behaviors. Hmm. I remember if, if this is already perhaps. 10 years back, I can't remember, but mm -hmm. I read an interview with some people who did the AI for um, some some big uh, RPG. I, I don't really kind of track the AAA game world that much, so mm -hmm. I, I don't yeah. remember which one it was. But anyway, they, they were very enthusiastic because they um, introduced some somewhat sophisticated planning behavior, and they, mm -hmm. uh, they just described how excited they were when one of the uh, non-player characters they kind of observed how that character something like you know went out and did something to get some money perhaps to buy food because that character yeah. was hungry you know yeah, they yeah. just thought it was very cool and, and it is very cool um, mm -hmm. so that's kind of one half of it and if mm -hmm. I if I get what you're saying correctly like the, the other half would be to not only have to just sit and like wait and see if something cool happens but you could actually kind of uh, describe your expectations uh, that that they should have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Describe your expectations, and and also even in some cases, um, hand author what like a specific sequence of things you want to happen. Because I, I think like this is kind of a misconception a lot of academics in game AI have is that well, you know why like why would you want to actually just sit there and script what your character is doing? You can just give them a goal, and then our system will figure out how they do it. But in narrative in particular, I think it's actually often important that authors have this ability to to say when specific sequences of events are going to happen, because that's what I mean, that's that's what fiction writers are used yeah. to doing. They, you know, describe events that unfold in um, designed and deliberate ways. And so, you know, and, and I think a lot of authors are interested in in adding more kind of serendipity and uh, generativity to their systems, but they want to balance that with authored moments. So that's kind of what I'm trying to, uh, the, that balance is what I'm trying to strike with the new system I'm working on. Oh, that's really interesting. I, I personally, I, I've never been that fascinated 
uh, were attracted to kind of open world games. I mean, it mm-hmm. can be very cool and they're very advanced and, you know, yeah. but, uh, but it's still, yeah, it doesn't do much for me. I, uh, whereas in something like interactive fiction, uh, mm-hmm. you're all the way kind of aware that you're being, you're very much kind of in a box that the author created, but that's actually right. what makes it so good. You have just enough freedom to kind of imagine that you have freedom, but yeah. at the same time, you're in a dialogue with the author all the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's something that um, you know that I, I agree with very much, and and hear from other people all the time is that um, yeah. you know some of the joy of playing a game is is kind of feeling the designer come through it and and kind of learning how to speak the same language that the designer mm. is speaking is trying to speak with you and and this is something one of my other interests is puzzle games and um well interactive fiction sort of classic interactive fiction has a lot of puzzles in it uh but uh, other types of puzzle games do this too i think by you know kind of um teaching you this new fictional world, this new kind of universe where the rules are, are, are weird and new to you. Um, mm-hmm. So they maybe will teach you a little bit with some simple examples. And then once you kind of learn that language, you use that to navigate through the rest of the world. Um, like interactive mm-hmm. fiction, just, you know, at the basic level, it's just, you know, like learning kind of what commands are useful. Like you can look around and pick things up and talk to characters and, and whatnot. And then, you know, on top of that, usually authors will also include some kind of twist or some, like, I, I guess in this case, I'm talking more about, like, um, not so much the 80s Infocom games, but, like, the 90s and beyond, like, hobbyist interactive fiction movement. Um, mm-hmm. I don't yeah. know if you've, if that's what you're more familiar with, but, yeah. And, yeah, this this idea of, you know, kind of, like, a- adding some some new idea, like a new verb, like, it might tell you, I, I think there's a, a game I'm thinking of where like one of the key verbs is remember. So you can sort of uh, remember or think about sort of different mm-hmm. events. And you now have this new like affordance for interacting with the world. I think that's one of the coolest yeah. things. Yeah. 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 Okay. So one last question that uh, when, when you brought up planning, which is one of the central areas of classical AI. Uh, how much use do you make of classical AI, you know, where people have been kind of working on this kind of thing, but without any reference to games or interactive uh, stories or anything. But do you find, can, can you still make use of that stuff? Or? Yeah. So it was actually one of the surprising and exciting parts of my post-PhD journey to uh, to realize that actually a lot of the interest that other people had in what I was doing was coming from an AI community, you know, is, or, or sort of a self-described AI community that's uh, really, it's, you know, game AI or mm. computational creativity is kind of another view on it. And, um, and in that world, like in, the, in, in games, because environments are often synthetic, the... Um, uh, old-fashioned, uh, you know, sort of gold, good old-fashioned AI techniques are actually still alive and well, and are still being being used in these settings. Where in in many other realms, right, they've been replaced with data-driven approaches. Mm. But um, in games, it's like, well, you're often making up a whole new world, right? So you don't have a lot of data about it. Maybe you could, um, you know, I think increasingly people are like, even in the games world, you know, you have lots of players and player data and so on. So that's that's definitely a thing. But um, but there's also just like there's a lot of classical AI work that's that's alive and well. And um, in fact, a very uh, rich 
planning-based narrative generation, um, little kind of corner of the world, uh, which is actually also how I got my job. Um, it's like kind of one of the pioneers of using planning for narrative generation, um, heard about my work and kind of invited me to apply at NC State. Uh, that's Michael Young. So, so yeah, there, there is, and I was very surprised to discover this because it, you know, at CMU, it was kind of all like very uh, traditional, like I was in a computer science department, not like, I don't know, the School of Computer Science has all kinds of different branches of, of computer science, but I was in just the computer science department where mm-hmm. people were very much still focused on foundations and theory and systems and, you know, kind of AI in, in a classical and very serious sense. And the idea of applying any of this stuff to games or narrative was outside of most people's scope. So it was really exciting to me to sort of find that there was this community of games researchers out there who were viewing what I was doing as a contribution to AI, whereas I was thinking of mm. it as a contribution to programming languages. Um, yeah. But yeah, and I've been, I've been um, kind of learning a lot more about the the overlaps of those domains. Yeah, so no, this is a been, kind of a, a fun, yeah, a fun development that uh, all these um, so-called old AI, you know, good old-fashioned AI that yeah. some people regard as obsolete, that, they, that mm-hmm. it's uh, just a fun thing that they are kind of finding a home in this creative corner of the computational world. It's mm-hmm. going to be really mm-hmm. interesting and certainly yeah. hope to explore it more in the podcast. So before Very we wrap cool. up, um, if, if people want to know more about you and your work, etc., where would you recommend that they look you up? Probably the easiest place is Twitter. Um, I also pretty much use the same handle everywhere online uh, and have for many years, uh, which is Chris Amaphone, Chris A-M-A phone, P-H-O-N-E. So that's my Twitter handle. You can look that up and I link to my academic website from there. Okay, Chris, uh, thank you so much for taking the time. thank you. This was Mm -hmm. really great, yeah. Thank you for listening to this interview with Chris Martins. I've always been a fan of text-based games, which often go under the wider label of interactive fiction. And I think a big reason why I like them so much is this sense of being put in touch with an idealized, stripped-down universe. Objects in a space moving around, somehow interacting and transforming and revealing new objects and spaces. And I'm not sure I can explain exactly how, but logic programming gives me that same sense of discovering something essential about programming and about thinking in general, and at the same time writing some good code. As we talked about towards the end, there's a whole bunch of people who are exploring ways of using logic programming and various techniques from the toolbox of classical AI for things like game design and narrative generation. So this is definitely a thread we'll return to in future episodes. I do love to hear your feedback, whether on this episode or the podcast in general. You can find me on Twitter at searchspacepod or send me an email to felix at thesearch.space or just go to the webpage, which is thesearch.space. You can even buy me a cup of coffee if you want to help speed up the process of spreading the knowledge of logic programming experts. The link is on the webpage. To all of you who donated one or several cups of coffee, please know 
that the reason I'm sounding so great right now is that your donations helped me buy a new microphone. I hope you're enjoying it. If you like this podcast, please share it with your network. And if you love it, please give it five stars or a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to help other people find it. The music is Phase One by Silo Zyko, used under Creative Commons license.